0: Chapter 2 of John's Gospel reveals a glory that is eternal and a hope that is certain. And our purpose today is simply this. It's to see the glory of Jesus so that we put our trust uh, in him. Well, we've seen over the past few weeks that John's Gospel really is a story of the God who comes towards uh, his people. Chapter 1 is a chapter that's been full of movement, hasn't it? So we've had uh, the start of the word dwelling with God. Uh, In eternity, then the word became flesh uh, and dwells with humanity. Light breaks into uh, the darkness. We discover the Lord is coming towards his people. Not only that, but he is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. The one who will pour the Holy Spirit into the hearts of people. The Son of God. He just keeps on uh, coming. And John kind of builds the anticipation. The next day, the next day. The next day and we get to chapter two and if you like the preliminaries uh, are over and we start to get to the heart uh, of christian good news we see something of the glory of jesus and something of what he came to do two points this morning the first is this we see that jesus is lord of the new creation jesus is lord of the new creation look at verse 11 Verse 11 of chapter 2. This, the first of his miraculous signs, Jesus performed at Cana in Galilee. He thus revealed his glory and his disciples put their faith in him. The first half of this chapter reveals, records, the first of only seven sign miracles that Jesus performs across John's Gospel. One of only seven. And we see a glimpse of the glory of God, the majestic substance of God in Jesus, as one writer has put it. But it starts, doesn't it, with a bit of a car crash at verse 1. Have a look at verse 1. On the third day, a wedding took place in Cana, in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there, uh, and Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. When the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, "'They have no more wine.'" My very detailed knowledge of Middle Eastern ancient civilizations tells me that running out of wine at a wedding was a 21st century equivalent of running out of wine at a wedding. Uh, but actually worse, because wedding parties could last for up to a week. Running out of wine was a social disaster. Worse than that, so I was reading, if the wedding went wrong, then the bridegroom could be sued by his new in-laws as the one who's responsible uh, for the party bad start to married life but very reassuring that lawyers were kept busy uh, in those days but I think Mary knows this doesn't she that's why she steps in she seems to have an inkling that there's something special about Jesus so she says to him they have no more wine they kind of Jesus you can you can sort this The response of Jesus is quite enigmatic, isn't it? Quite cryptic. What does he say? Dear woman, why do you involve me? My time has not yet come. What what does Jesus mean? My time has not yet come. Well, this is a phrase that my time or or the hour, it's a phrase that kind of develops over John's gospel as as the gospel unfolds. And we see that it has two meanings, really, both related uh, to, to the other. The first meaning is that when Jesus is speaking about the time or the hour, he is speaking about his death to come. His death to come. So when he talks about his death in John 12, verse 23, what does he say? The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Lots of other examples throughout the Gospel. The phrase, the hour or the time, is Jesus talking about his death. But also, secondly, on other occasions, when Jesus speaks about the time or the hour, he is speaking, if you like, about the consequences or the outflow of his death. So one example, chapter 5, verse 28, Jesus talks about a time of resurrection life that will come as a result of his death. So when Jesus speaks about the time or the hour, he's speaking about his death and the consequences that will follow. It is as if Mary says to Jesus here, you can sort this out. You can end the embarrassment. You can guarantee a great end uh, to this wedding party. And almost in a sense, Jesus says in response, the day is coming when that will be possible. But today is not that day. The hour has, this is not the hour uh, when everything will be made right once and for all. Moe's kind of a proud mother, isn't she? She can't really resist getting in the last word. So we have verse 5. Do whatever he tells you, she says. So Jesus, I think, senses an opportunity. And what does he do? He steps forward. What happens? We've got these six huge ceremonial uh, water jars filled to the brim uh, with water. And then Jesus tells the servants, verse 8, verse 8. Until now. I don't know about you, but I hate that moment in a restaurant when you order a bottle of wine and the waiter comes over and says, Would you like to try it, sir? And um, you kind of can't really lose face. So you say, Well, yes, of course. So it's sort of poured there in front of you. You have a taste in front of the waiter, knowing full well he's looking down on you, thinking you don't have a clue. and then you have to pretend that you do. Yes, do go on. It's very good. Pour on. Just, just imagine uh, how the master of the banquet, as the wine that is poured here, would have been. He would have kind of swirled it round, wouldn't he, in his glass. He would have, he would have you know, smelt it, taken it to his nose, doing whatever you do with it. And inhaling, he would have immediately realized, you know, this is no Aldi bargain bin bottle, is it? This is sensational. And as he takes a sip, He would have had these sensational flavours come over him. Charcoal, (laughs) toasts, plums, uh, whatever kind of floats your wine boat. Uh, But he knows that not only is this kind of sensational wine, he knows that the party is going to end in a spectacular uh, way. And Jesus, it's Jesus who has guaranteed this. It's spectacular, isn't it? It's a supernatural miracle of power, exactly really what you'd expect uh, if God is involved. If you kind of toss up the mass, you've got about 800 bottles of the finest Malbec here, or 61 cases, uh, apparently. That's a lot of wine. No killjoy Jesus uh, here. But, you know, remember, this is a sign miracle, isn't it? So only one of seven sign miracles that Jesus will perform across this gospel. So what is the kind of deeper significance uh, that's playing out here? If you're driving down the A11 and you see a sign to where you're going, you don't get out your car and say, what a glorious road sign. What a fantastic sign that is. That would be absurd, wouldn't it? it, it instead, you, you follow the sign uh, to where it's pointing. So what is the deeper reality that's pointed to here? It is a spectacular reality is pointing towards an eternity of the finest wine. I think to get to grips with this, we need, don't we, to get to grips really with the language that is spoken here, the language of John, the language of the New Testament. What did they speak? They spoke in the language, really, of the Old Testament. John repeatedly brings that in to help us understand who Jesus is. There are lots of places we could go to. We haven't got much time. We're going to go to just one. But just turn back to page 708. Uh, page 708, uh, Isaiah chapter 25. Page 708. These are words from the prophet Isaiah. Chapter 25, verse 6, page 708. Was Isaiah write? On this mountain, the Lord Almighty will prepare a feast of rich food for all peoples, a banquet of aged wine, the best of meats, the finest of wines, On this mountain he will destroy the shroud that enfolds all peoples, the sheet that covers all nations. He will swallow up death forever. The sovereign Lord will wipe away the tears from all faces and he will remove the disgrace of his people from the earth. Isaiah takes, doesn't he, this image of wine and he puts it in the much bigger collage, if you like of the matrix of images which points to the wonderful new creation uh, that God promises he will bring in. When God writes all of the wrongs. This this imagery in Isaiah, the kind of fulfillment of it in in John 2, do turn back to John 2, uh, is kind of designed, isn't it, to sort of get our minds whirring, really. What is it that God has in store uh, for us? I think don't worry if you're a teetotal vegetarian. Uh, I mean, C.S. Lewis writes that these sorts of poetic images, kind of wine, food, feasts, they're symbolic attempts to express the inexpressible. But they tell us that the new creation will will be a place of joy, a place of celebration, a place of satisfaction, of plenty. A place of partying uh, is the message. But what is the best bit? The best bit is that death will be no more. Death is that shroud, isn't it, which covers everything, that, that final frontier. We don't, we don't really talk about it. We don't want to think about it. And for some of us, it's going to be closer to us in life and experience than, than others. But death is coming uh, for all of us. It's always characterized, isn't it, by tears. But God says that tears will one day be wiped Away once and for all. And this miracle in John 2 is a signpost that Jesus can do all of that. Jesus will do all of that. In, in, in a sense, this kind of says to us, you know, take all the happy moments, the happy endings that you've experienced in life, take the great highs uh, of your life, take the happiest moments, add in your, your best hopes, your best dreams, the best tastes that you've had. You know, the the most wonderful sound that you've heard, the the kind of best touch that you've experienced, the the close friendship, uh, the greatest success, security of the safest place. You know, bring all that together in a kind of experience that never ends. And that is a tiny glimpse or taste of the new creation that God will bring in. An eternity of the finest wine is what Jesus promises. Yet what is the best thing? What is the best thing about the new creation that Jesus is promising, if not any of these things? The best thing, as far as John is concerned, is the one who has brought it in. An eternity of the finest wine is only possible because Jesus, the bridegroom, has come. Did you notice in in verse verse 9, that the credit for this miracle goes to the bridegroom, doesn't it? Did you spot that? It's a bit harsh, isn't it? But kind of understandable, because the bridegroom, well, he's in charge of the party. But it was Jesus who did this, not the bridegroom. So Jesus steps into, doesn't he, the shoes of the bridegroom. For that moment, at least, Jesus is uh, the bridegroom. And we'll see that that from here to the end of chapter 4, in this kind of section, if you like, of John's Gospel, uh, the idea of Jesus as a bridegroom is developed. So Jesus is explicitly referred to as a bridegroom in chapter 3, a chapter that is full uh, of wedding imagery. John the Baptist is the best man, Jesus is the bridegroom. And this is a passage that stands, doesn't it, in the flow of all the Old Testament imagery about Jesus, about God uh, as the bridegroom. Isaiah 62, as the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall God rejoice over you. What has happened here? The bridegroom has come. Come to meet his bride, and the most intimate of all human relationships is the picture of the relationship that Jesus has come for with his people. And by the time we kind of get to chapter 4, it's quite surprising who, who the bride uh, turns out to be. Uh, Nikki and I are married, my wife, Nikki, my wife, married 13 years tomorrow. Um, I don't know I but, um, and imagine this, imagine if after the wedding I had said to Nikki, terribly sorry, I don't really fancy the wedding party, I'm off to watch the West Wing or the rugby or whatever was kind of going down at the time. If I had not turned up, it would obviously have been a rubbish party. Uh, perhaps not, uh, but it's true, isn't it? You know, a, a wedding needs both the bride and the bridegroom to be there, and that is the same here. The new creation will only be good and great and glorious because of Jesus, the bridegroom, because he will be there. So this really is a miracle, isn't it? About Uh, Jesus, where Jesus reveals his glory, where Jesus shows he is the source of all joy, all satisfaction, uh, all pleasure. He is the source of resurrection life uh, that will be brought in one day. And all of the good things in the new creation will flow out only because Jesus will be there uh, at the centre. So this is a miraculous sign Of the new creation, uh, but only because it is a sign about Jesus. Jesus is Lord of the new creation. I suppose the question is, well, how will the bridegroom and the brides be united? How will it happen? Well, much more briefly, uh, as we finish, we see secondly that Jesus is the Lord over death. Jesus is Lord over death. What happens? Well, after this, this first sign miracle, what does Jesus do? He goes down to Capernaum for a few days and on to Jerusalem uh, for the Jewish uh, Passover. This is dripping uh, with meaning. Here you've got Jesus, a man who is God, who is heading to the one place on earth where God dwells, the temple. And he does it on the day that represents relationship uh, between God and people, this festival uh, of the Passover. And Jerusalem kind of would have been buzzing. It would have been this great festival. All the people from the known world uh, would have been gathering a sort of Washington on inauguration day, unless you are Trump. But when Jesus goes to the temple, he is outraged uh, by what he finds, isn't he? The temple, the one place on earth where God has taken up residence. This cannot be the place for trading uh, animals, birds, for exchanging money. This just is not the place. So Jesus kicks off clears it out, overturns the tables, no meek and mild here. Don't you think the response of the Jews is quite interesting? What's the response of the Jews? They don't arrest Jesus, they could have arrested him, but they don't, they don't arrest him. Perhaps they have some sort of sense of, some sort of divine anger being at work in, in Jesus. So instead they ask Jesus a question, don't they, verse nineteen, Verse 18. What miraculous sign can you show us to prove your authority to do all this? What authority do you have to do what you've just done? Jesus replies, verse 19, destroy this temple and I will raise it again in three days. Jesus replied, it has taken 46 years to build this temple and you are going to raise it in three days? But the temple he had spoken of was his body. After he was raised from the dead, his disciples recalled what he had said. Then they believed the scriptures and the words that Jesus had spoken. Jesus effectively says, you want a sign of my authority? Then kill me and, and see what will happen. I will rise again. I am more powerful than you can possibly comprehend. Resurrection is God's seal of authority uh, on Jesus, the definitive statement that Jesus is the Christ. He's God's king. He's the one who can come to judge with authority. He judges with authority here in the temple. He'll come back one day to judge in full uh, with all authority. Resurrection says this is Christ. This is God's king. What we have here really is the kind of coming into bloom or, or the, the flowering of a seed that we had back in, planted back in chapter 1, verse 14. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. A better word for that word, dwelling, would be at tabernacle. Tabernacle was the Old Testament word used to describe the tent. That God inhabited, that moved around with His people before they got around to building the, the permanent temple. God tabernacled uh, with His people. Now John is saying, Jesus, He is the new tabernacle. Jesus is the new dwelling of God uh, with His people, and Jesus is the He is the one who will open up access uh, back to God. The days of temple animal sacrifices, they are finished. People no longer need to fill ceremonial stone water jars with water to get cleansed with. That's gone. Something new, something better, something more abundant has come. A person has come. Jesus has come to fulfill everything that the temple stood for. And the zeal of God, the passion of God, if you like, to dwell, to have relationship. Uh, with his people, will consume and destroy Jesus. Consume and destroy him. It will lead him, uh, as we'll see, to the agony uh, of the cross, to take the punishment we deserve uh, for our sins. So we can be cleansed. We can be forgiven. We can have relationship uh, with God. And yet that is not where it ends. Jesus is destroyed He dies, but three days later, he is raised to life by God himself. That is what Jesus is talking about here. A testimony that he has conquered death so that his people might enjoy resurrection life. Death will be no more. We will live with God. So the bride and the bridegroom can be joined at that never-ending banquet in the new creation with Jesus at the centre. Well, where do you stand this morning? John says towards the end of, end of his gospel, chapter 20, verse 31, that he has written these things that we may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing we may have life in his name. Jesus is the word made flesh, the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, the Lord who comes for his people, is consumed for his people, the son of God, the bridegroom who will be at a party, at the center of a party that will run on for eternity. We've seen, haven't we, the glory of Jesus. Will we trust him? Let's pray. Lord God, we do uh, praise you and thank you for this uh, sign miracle uh, of Jesus, uh, Lord, that points us uh, to the wonders of the new creation to come, that Jesus uh, will be at the centre of. And Lord, we praise you for the wonder of the cross, uh, the path that opens up access uh, back to you, that Jesus gave his body, was consumed Uh, for our sins, and yet was raised uh, to life again, so that we may have life, we may be united uh, in that new creation. Lord God, we give you thanks, we give you praise uh, for these wonderful truths. Please would you help us to keep our eyes fixed uh, on the Lord Jesus. Uh, Put our trust in him each uh, moment and each day of our lives, we pray. In his name. Amen.